0: This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get it, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow
1: on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. From the London market close to the US market action, you are listening to the cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5pm in the City of London. Coming up on the programme, Theresa May fighting for her political survival whilst Emmanuel Macron shores up his position in the French Parliament. A tale of two Europe's is something we'll be focusing on, of course, as well as a big week for central banks beginning throughout the week We'll be looking at tech stocks tanking, too. Before we get there, let's get you up to speed on the top stories. Here's
2: Bloomberg's Charlie Pellett. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. A day after she was forced to promote prominent Brexit hardliners in her bid to cling to power, Prime Minister May is set to face furious lawmakers from her Conservative Party in a showdown that could signal the end of her premiership. Unhappy as the Tories are with May, the prospect of a lengthy leadership contest and fresh elections is even less appealing Italy's opposition five-star movement suffered heavy setbacks in local elections yesterday dimming the party's prospects of leading the national government after parliamentary elections next year the second round is scheduled for June 25th and President Macron in France expanded his control of French politics as voters put his party on track to a sweeping majority in the National Assembly in the first round of legislative elections the new president's year-old party Republic on the move won thirty-two point three percent of the vote alongside its centrist ally, Mo Dem. And that is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrell, back to you. Charlie, thank you very much, sir. The market closing lower
0: in London then by about two-tenths of 1%. The losses on the continent, a lot more heavier. The DAX down by almost one full percentage point in Frankfurt, Germany. The tech stocks are big losers. If you take the region's equity benchmark, the Stock 600, technology equities as an industry group on that index down by 3.61% on the day. So the tech sell-off that began in the United States on Friday followed through to Asia and spread across Europe through to Monday. If you look at the FX market very quickly, of course, big losses on Friday as we got that election result from the United Kingdom, a hung parliament. The result... The pound just got sold and then got sold again and sold a little bit more. We're down by about seven-tenths of 1% on the cable rate in today's session. The pound now $1.2655. That is our top story. The UK Prime Minister Theresa May chairing a meeting of her new cabinet today. She will hear firsthand the anger of Conservative members of Parliament who blame her for the catastrophic election campaign that caused the Tories to lose their parliamentary majority. In an ITV interview on Monday, Brexit Secretary David Davis said questions over Theresa May's leadership is unbelievably self-indulgent. Joining me to discuss is Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, and Michael Hewson, the chief market analyst for CMC Markets in London. Gents, great to have you with us on the programme to kind of break down what we've we've been seeing so far. And what really strikes me is just how easy people are cherry-picking narratives over the weekend as to what's gone wrong here and then justifying why... The sterling price is down because it was about Brexit, and now it's not about Brexit, but it is about Brexit. I'm confused. I'm sure everyone else is as well. Marcus Ashworth makes sense of it for me.
3: Well, I had to spend the whole evening or night um, waiting to write something about markets, and, and they, they wouldn't really move. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, gilt's basically didn't do anything. Uh, went down, actually, and then and back up again. Sterling, I think, really is a very modest move, incredibly modest move to, yeah. for, for what's happened. So I wouldn't read too much, in it, though I do think that whilst we were saying that the direction of travel was likely to be up for Sterling, I would now say after this result, the direction of travel is likely to be lower, and I would say it's more likely to have a look at 120 than it would be to go back up to the top of the range at 135. Um, I would simply put what happened down to a youth quake. Uh, I don't necessarily say it's all about uh, Brexit, though some of it is, is a remain a sort of, I think there's a feeling that clearly that uh, that whole, whole raft of Society were, were being excluded from certain things and there was a, a, a very clever social media campaign which resonated, which wasn't picked up by, by anyone and it, it caught... Um, so the Conservatives are very flat-footed.
0: Michael Houston, I think some people are still surprised by the charts. Sterling hasn't fully erased the snap election bounce that we got on April nineteenth, and I'm wondering why, and I think others are too. I mean, Marcus touched on it. If I said hung Parliament, people would reply one twenty. Um, mm. Hung Parliament's the result one twenty six fifty seven is how we trade. Why?
4: Well, it depends which exchange rate you're looking at, John, doesn't it? you look at euro sterling it's at its lowest levels this year so yeah you pays your money you takes your choice ultimately against the dollar it's more a symptom of the fact that ultimately the dollar's weak um but it's only it's only a little less weak than the actual pet or a little more little less weak than the pound is so i wouldn't read too much into the fact that it's not given up all of its um post-election announcement gains against the dollar uh, simply because the dollar's particularly weak as well. So it's a bit of an ugly contest there. Um, Against the euro, there's slightly different dynamics driving it. Um, But you're right. I mean, it's not a particularly great outcome, but it's certainly not about Brexit, because ultimately um, the Labour Party has the same position as the Tory party on it, even if their policy sort of speaks out of both sides of its mouth, because ultimately they want to stay in the single market and they want to control immigration. Well, you know, I've got news for you, boys in the Labour Party. You can't do both. And if you haven't explained that to the people who voted for you, then maybe you should start now.
0: We well, don't need to because they didn't win. Although I will say, over the weekend, um, if you didn't know the result, Marcus Ashworth, you might think that Labour had actually won if you followed the news coverage in the United Kingdom. A, what is that about? And B, what kind of influence is it going to have, if at all, on the negotiations that are coming?
3: Well, in some senses, they, they have one in the context of what they wanted to achieve, which is um, the, the Corbyn revolution. You know, he has now uh, put himself in a, in a situation where he is a um, potential prime minister, and that is something which could well uh, we could well see with with another election if it were to happen for the end of the year. He's completely got the whole agenda of the Labour Party under onto, onto his, his view. Um, and, and he doesn't. He isn't ready for, for government yet, or anything, anywhere close. I don't but think he ever possible. will be, Marcus. <laughs> well, there we go. I can't possibly comment. But the point is, is that that, that certainly that the um, the shock of this and the fact that the youth vote has been so strong, amazingly strong, in in ticking university uh, towns and cities and like that. But it really has been a, a sensational result uh, yeah. that that has changed the whole. Uh, I think the whole dynamic of British politics, and it shows the media. Um, are no longer, you know, looking in the right direction.
0: Well, I just wonder whether the media are continuing to make mistakes now. Michael Hewson, cherry-picking narratives is how we started this conversation. And what I see is some people just beginning with one constituency and deciding, well, that's what it was about. Mm. So they'll take Kensington and it's swung to Labour by 20 votes and, well, that must mean this was about Brexit. Well, that doesn't explain to me why Stoke-on-Trent-South went Conservative the first time since the 1950s. Quite clearly, or Mansfield. yeah. This election was much more than about one issue, and I, I think the Conservatives wanted it to be a one-issue election, but essentially made it about fox hunting and social care. Well, which, I mean, that, that was that was that was the ridiculous. P- yeah. I think
4: this was the ridiculous part of the manifesto, John. But I think they did miscalculate. I think they felt that the UKIP vote would fall completely their way, and it didn't. It did probably in the north but probably more in the south it didn't it went more to labor and ultimately you know if you look at the two campaigns you know whatever my personal views on jeremy corbyn's uh, and the company that he keeps he did run the more effective campaign it was more optimistic you know even though you know basically it was offering people a moon on a stick ultimately you know, it basically resonated can, can more Ashworth with people. And I get a moon on a stick? I've yeah,
0: never cool. heard of that in my life. Michael Houston, someone said to me last Friday, um, people care about their personal life overdrafts and, and not the national one, and I guess that still wins votes. Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, sticking with me alongside Michael Houston with the moon on the stick over at CMC Markets. Up next. House prices in London, everyone's favourite topic. You're listening to The Cable. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow
4: on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon to the city of London. If only you knew the things Michael Houston sent me. He just sent me the Urban Dictionary, an etymology of... Moon on a stick. Uh, Michael Hewson, <laughs> <laughs> you are listening to the cable. 510 pm in the city, from the London market close to the US market action, live, of course. You on, wanted to know. On DAB Digital Radio. I did, and, and now I do. So um, let's talk about something completely different. Um, moons on a stick in, in the city of London, within zone one. Expensive house prices climbed to a record last month. But the slowdown in London sales was offset by a stronger market in the north of the country. Prices in England and Wales rose 0.3% from April to an average of £303,200. Despite the uncertainties of the general election campaign, prices were actually up 4.8% on an annual basis, the biggest jump since January. But for London... It's the collapsing volume of transactions that, that really catches my eye. Marcus Ashworth, London Property, I had a conversation with someone last week, went for breakfast with them, and they said, ignore the prices that are being listed. And if you want to buy, put in an aggressive
3: offer because the buyers just aren't there. It ever, ever thus, and that's certainly the, the case, um, particularly in London now, in, 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 in things like um, new builds, one, two bedroom flats, uh, where there is a super- massive surplus of supply um, you know clearly it's even within london there is a very very uh, regional breakdown as to as to certain markets are stronger than others for you know new transport links or, or what have you and and there've been massive overbuilding in certain areas but the one thing this election result has done is there is no way there are going to be any alterations to stamp duty in the near future so higher end property in london which is basically most of london um, is not going to get any relief
0: higher end property is just Cratered in terms of demand at the very top end because of stamp duty. Um, Michael Hewson, we, we've had this conversation before. As an asset class, and essentially for some people that's what London property is, what is the outlook for it now, given the Brexit situation and the several years of uncertainty and the fact that there's a lot of talent, high-paid talent, mm. that really don't know what the future of the city is?
4: Well, I think that's. I think you just hit the nail on the head. Until this Brexit situation is sorted out, um, it's going to be very, very difficult for someone to commit a large degree of funds to purchase London property. And ultimately, I think this, this decline in house prices is slightly misleading in terms of the fact that it was bumped up higher a year ago, or whatever it was, to beat the stamp duty um, going up. So you've got people basically piling into the market, driving prices up to beat the change in stamp duty. Now it's come in. The demand's dried up, and prices are having to come back down to a realistic level. You know, it's like anything. If you basically put a deadline on something and you say that the tax is going to go up from say three percent to ten percent or something yeah. like that, you're going to get uh, a massive rush to get in before the tax goes up, and that's going to drive prices higher. And then suddenly it's going to come back down again. Ultimately, they're still unaffordable to the ordinary person in the street. If you're a util- you know, if you're a, a firefighter or a police man or woman or a nurse you still have to commute in from a very very long way out to go to work in London yeah I, I know someone who actually lives on the south coast who works in a in a south London hospital that's a 60 mile trip there and back every day
0: 29% lower the uh, sales were for the three months through April so you know explain to some extent by by what you just talked about um, Kensington going labour then is even the even the rich Locals of Kensington are going socialist because they don't like the house prices, uh,
4: Michael. Or is it, or is it just a case of you actually got people who don't normally vote, out, onto, the, you know, out onto the street, so to speak, and into the polling booth, because um, ultimately Jeremy Corbyn did a great job in actually exercising... twenty votes. 20 votes 20 votes votes. I've got more Facebook friends than that the
0: the youth vote the youth vote actually turned up who would have thought it there we go Marcus Hewson Marcus Ashworth sticking with me up next who would have thought this if I told you in the middle of April the bastion of political stability would be France and the bastion of UK political instability would be Westminster Um, you might have laughed in my face but that's the situation we have now it's a tale of two Europe's um, but maybe not what you would have expected Um, we'll discuss that next you are listening to The Cable you're listening to Bloomberg Radio This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio Good afternoon good afternoon to the City of London I'm Jonathan Farrow you are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio from the London market close to the US market action 5.18pm in the city, in Europe, wait for it, political stability seems to be where we're going. President Emmanuel Macron of France expanded his control of French politics as voters put his party on track to a swooping majority in the National Assembly in the first round of legislative elections. The results, which need to be confirmed in a final round of voting next Sunday, would give Macron the biggest majority in the Assembly since 1993. That's France. Over in Italy, Italy's opposition five-star movement suffered heavy setbacks in local elections on Sunday, dimming the party's prospect of leading the national government after parliamentary elections sometime next year and p- potentially preventing the uh, populist party from getting a grip of uh, Italian politics. So do we have some stability in Europe and what does it mean for, uh, for your investments? Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, Michael Hewson, the chief market analyst for CMC Markets in, in London. Alongside me today, Marcus, by Europe, big story based on relative valuations a number of months ago. I think we would would have laughed if you were basing that on political stability. But it seems that at least relative to where we were two months ago, we're in a good place in terms of European politics.
3: The status quo remains for investors. That's got to be a plus plus. It will not last. Uh, the last time anyone got a, a massive majority in the assembly, which was Hollande, his party crashed <laughs> and burned. Has basically gone now, uh, and I suspect, in fact, now I'll predict that in five years' time, Macron's party will suffer the same fate. It's a one-man party. We don't really still know what exactly what he what he's after and what he wants and how he'll he'll act and react. He's done very well so far, yeah, um, but it will not last, and. Um, I hope it does for as long as it can do, but uh, in essence, I think France will will, will slip back in in, in a few years' time back to what it knows and and the types of uh, parties it's familiar with. Nonetheless, um, the Italian thing is is more important uh, short term. I think um, the fact that, uh, as I had suspected, Renzi had, had had to dally with the concept of changing the electoral system to a German one, which would be an utter disaster for Italy, but he didn't really mean it. And he finally was was flushed out and had to admit he didn't mean it. Therefore, the chances of a short-term election in September are zero. And we'll get one in March, as we all sort of expected in in the first time. So, um, you know, Italy really needs to be a semi-stable economy with a semi-stable political system. And there are no signs at the moment that it's going to happen. But the fact that it's moved away from an instant fear of of five-star and elections in September, is clearly good news. Uh, I wrote last week about the fact it was odd timing for the for the challenge to come for a 30-year, uh, and and so it proved um, as, as as yields came <laughs> straight back down again. But there you go,
0: My, Michael Hewson. It will not last. Let's pick up there and just start with France. Are we saying, and, and because he hasn't really been successful in doing anything yet, because he hasn't tried to do anything yet, but it's it's exceptional the fact that he has managed to get a majority when this party didn't even exist 12 months ago. Are we saying that the first sign of, of gunfire he runs, and what I mean by that is as soon as the strikes begin, when he does start to try and really reform the economy, he pulls a U-turn?
4: This is the point, isn't it? Because this is what happened with Francois Hollande. Um, I think Macron is not Hollande. So we could, hear, we could see a different outcome. But one thing struck me about this particular vote, John, the low turnout. It's almost as if um, his opposition has given up. Yeah. And ultimately, they're going to take their fight to the streets. And I think that's when the big test will come. He's got plenty of good ideas. He's got plenty of good intentions. But as soon as he starts messing about with a coat de try, that's when the fur will hit the fan. And that's when I think you could see his how, you know, how strong he really is. You know, majority or not, you've still got to sell it to the French people. And the unions are still very, very strong.
0: One thing we haven't discussed um, so far in any detail is the Brexit negotiations. Regardless of whether he'll be successful with reforms, Europe looks a lot more politically stable than it did a couple of months ago. The UK does not. Hmm. Marcus, around the table when these negotiations begin, surely the leverage is on the other side of the channel now.
3: <clears throat> well, in some sense, it always was because I think what what's slightly annoys me when people bang on about soft or hard Brexit, yeah. they misunderstand there is no other option other than hard breakfast as far as uh, Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's done it. He's, uh, said he's done it. it. We've it. all done it once. Uh, Go on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, because, in essence, that's what um, it, it suits the Europeans and particularly with a, uh, as you said, strengthening political. Uh, uh, atmosphere there with Merkel looking like to have uh, going to beat Schultz quite easily and uh, obviously Macron that uh, these guys are now starting to think about okay, we, we, if Britain leaves we need to be much more consolidated and, and stronger together and they are starting to get things together which means they will have a more united front which is important for everyone because yeah. you can't have a deal unless you have both sides you know, in essence uh, having a clear view and being able to adopt uh, what uh, the negotiating parties come up with so yes, I think um, there is some sense that that Europe is pulling together and that will make them more united. But the reality is is that unless it's acceptable for both sides, whatever deal was going to be, regardless who you know how strong a majority may did or didn't have, it's in the balance of it. I don't think it's going to make a blind bit of difference. Isn't it odd, Michael Houston, that
0: we're kind of stuck in this world of using language? No one really understands hard Brexit, no deal, better than a bad deal.
4: Marcus is right. There's Brexit. Or no Brexit, hard yeah. Brexit, soft Brexit, yeah. clean Brexit, breakfast. you know, it, breakfast, oh, whatever. <laughs> you know, you're either in the single market or you're out, and uh, so it's Brexit or no Brexit. Yeah. And I think this is the problem. I think when you hear politicians from both sides, you know, sort of trading barbs at each other, the people on the ground think, what What is going on here? And I don't think most people really knew what they were voting for. Or what they weren't voting for, for that matter. Because there's just so much fluff. Um, Fox hunting
0: and, and social care, apparently. Oh,
4: I mean, that was just an absolute <laughs> nonsense. I mean, really, I think that's where the Conservatives really lost the plot. Yeah. It was their complacency. Mark complacent
0: Of CMC Markets With the moon on a stick And a dream That the city remains As it's always been Marcus Ashworth Alongside us as well From Bloomberg Gents, great to have you With us on the programme Thank you very much you. For your time No doubt we'll catch up With you in a couple of weeks or so Always good to catch up And break down What's happening in the UK Up next for Global Equities It's about a tech sell-off The route continues More next On Bloomberg Radio This is The Cable This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Hello, hello to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable, live on DAB Digital Radio, from the London market close to the U.S. equity market action. It has just gone 5.30pm in the City of London. Let's get you up to speed on the top stories. Here's
2: Bloomberg's Charlie Pellett. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. U.S. stocks, lower across the board right now, and the day after she was forced to promote prominent Brexit hardliners in her bid to cling to power, Prime Minister May is set to face furious lawmakers from her Conservative Party in a show that could signal the end of her premiership. Italy's opposition five-star movement suffered heavy setbacks in local elections yesterday, dimming the party's prospects of leading the national government. After parliamentary elections next year, the second round is scheduled for June 25th. And President Emmanuel Macron expanded his control of French politics as voters put his party on track to a sweeping majority in the National Assembly in the first round of legislative elections. The new president's year-old party, République on the Move, won 30 223 percent of the vote alongside its centrist ally, Modem. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrow, back to you.
0: Charlie, thank you very much, sir. In the broader equity
2: market, then the FTSE
0: 100 in London, closing that a little bit lower, down by 0.21%. On the continent, the DAX was down much harder by one full percentage point. And breaking down the stock 600, the biggest losing industry group on the day, tech stocks down by 2 or 3%. The sell-off in tech began on Friday, spread through Asia, went through to Europe and dominated Monday's trade in action in the U.S. as well. Large cap U.S. technology stocks, of course, including Apple, NVIDIA, Microsoft and Facebook... All falling, going into the open and beyond, the Nasdaq now down by one full percentage point. The sudden slide in tech stocks, which had helped send global equities to repeated record levels this year, blindsided many investors after markets largely brushed aside last week's trio of risk events. The question now is whether the drop represents merely a pause or a more fundamental crack in the US bull market. Joining me to discuss, Joe Weissenthal, of course, executive editor of News for Bloomberg Digital and co-anchor of what You Miss, alongside Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg. Joe, let's start with you. Uh, the market action on Friday, the follow through to Monday, pretty hard. Do we have a fundamental reason for this or is it just too much optimism in the price and just a classic pullback?
5: I mean, it's hard to find any real fundamental reason. I'm sure someone could sit here and make something up and find some story or something like that. But the run-up in uh, some of these tech names has just been extraordinary. The level of concentration, the degree to which uh, investors have become overweight these stocks, and I just think that when you have so many people leaning into one trade, you're going to get these very volatile periods. Even if the you know even if they're gonna even if they have higher to go, you would expect to see periods like this. And I don't know whether they're gonna go higher or lower. But I think this is just the sort of turbulence you run into when you hit uh, this kind of speed.
0: Yeah, I mean, you and I've talked before, and you've always been on top of this, how price action can just shape narratives. But what I thought was really interesting is one of the hedge fund stories that came out today, Viking Global Fund needing to return $8 billion to investors. And when you actually check the 13F filing, the biggest holdings, seven of the top 10 holdings, it's a percent of the portfolio, large cap tech so there's always something else going on somewhere so you've got to be careful about cherry-picking narratives but right. when you look at the run-up Michael McKee through 2017 the thematic bit in tech was almost this you're not going to get growth elsewhere story so go to tech it was like the anti-Trump trade mm. is
6: that what you're seeing in markets at a moment Michael almost the anti-Trump trade? Well to a certain extent there it's not I wouldn't say anti-Trump markets are more agnostic, uh, but they're uh, fading the Trump rally that we saw earlier because it doesn't look like he's going to be accomplishing much that would help boost profits. Uh, The thing that you also have to keep in mind, too, with uh, the run-up, And the drop in the last few days is, uh, Joe was talking about people sitting around uh, watching this. It's machines sitting around watching this. And so you do get a piling on when you get a momentum trade going. Somebody decides they don't like Apple because there was a bad story about the iPhone 8, and they start dumping Apple shares when a lot of people are going to pile into that. And what you sort of have seen this morning, if you take apart uh, the NASDAQ in the United States, is you got about half the stocks up, half the stocks down. It's the bigger names that are down, and that's dragging the index lower, but it could be a Lot worse if this were a major sell-off uh, it would probably be worse than uh, a nine-tenths drop uh, right. so far
0: there's something that's counterintuitive about the run-up though joe it's like a sector almost acting as a defensive sector that typically is not a defensive sector and that's kind of counterintuitive to me
5: absolutely well, i mean there are two stories with that one is you know people have said uh, generally speaking there's not much growth to be found overall in the economy. So people look for stories with their own secular growth stories. So obviously that's your Amazons and Facebooks and increasingly this year NVIDIA, things that have their own story. But as I, you know, there was that Goldman note that came out last week and maybe this is what jinxed the rally, pointing out that in a, these big cap tech names, in addition to having all the momentum and growth factors that investor lo- investors love, actually uh, are, have some of the lowest volatilities in the market, at least the the mega caps, the FANGs, the uh, Facebooks, Amazons, Googles. So for the people that want low vol or the uh, money that goes into low vol strategies, which of course is a sort of something people permanently like, these stocks were collecting that money as well. And I think there's a really interesting parallel You know, in the real world. You see these big companies sucking in economic activity from all corners of the world, whether it's, destroying traditional retail, destroying traditional TV, destroying traditional media. And you see it in the investment uh, side of things, taking money from growth, uh, traders from momentum, from value, from low vol. And so I think uh, you know that's sort of part of what made this story so compelling.
0: I thought the politically correct term was um, disrupt. I thought we didn't do oh, destroy. Oh, not sucking in. <laughs> you might be right. <laughs> but I think, I think you're probably right. I mean, I look at the situation in, in technology stocks, Michael, and what's clear is that there is what Goldman Sachs called the death of the reflation trade. And when I consider what the upside risk is for tech, the upside risk, I guess, is is their ability to bring some of that cash home, a repatriation holiday and the ability to, to really up cash deployment, capital deployment. Um, are we going to see any of these changes to the tax
6: code anytime soon? No, we're not going to see anything soon. You might get tax cuts, not tax reform, uh, late in the year, early next year, uh, depending on how the legislative calendar plays out with all the things they've got in front of them. But it doesn't look like we're going to get any kind of significant uh, change. Uh, But high on the list is the repatriation because they would like to use some of that cash to pay for other things, the the taxes they collect on it. Uh, The question is, even if you bring it back, though, what are companies going to do with it? It's not like Apple couldn't it buy anything it wanted right now without bringing any of that cash home. So uh, there's a question as to whether it would be used for investment or used for just share buybacks, which of course will boost the stock market, but not do anything yeah. for the economy in the long run. That's what we saw in 2004. Yeah. And, and
0: I guess the biggest indicator of that is that a lot of these companies have raised money in the debt market. And if it had something better to do, they would have done it then but they haven't they've raised money in the debt market and they've used it for buybacks and dividends and right on cue bloomberg news drops a story about uh 75% of the drop in the nasdaq Five names, just five names again yeah. for 75% it, of the pool, That, that was
5: basically the, the way, know, if it's concentration on the way up, it's going to be concentration on the way down, I guess.
0: Yeah. Uh, Joe Weiss and Tyler Bloomberg and Michael McKee of Bloomberg. Stick it with me. Up next, we take it to the week ahead, a big week ahead. A lot of central banks coming up. We take it to Michael McKee's world, the world of the Federal Reserve. For the City of London, you are listening to the cable, you are listening to Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan
0: Farrow
2: on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable. From the London market close to the US market action, live on DAB Digital Radio. Huge week ahead for our central banks. On Tuesday, it's the beginning of the US Federal Reserve two-day policy meeting. Then on Wednesday, of course, the FOMC rate decision. On Thursday, a Bank of England rate decision. On Friday, a BOJ rate decision. To look ahead to the Fed... Michael McKee and Joe Weiss and Tyler Bloomberg alongside me. Michael McKee on the agenda of Federal Reserve, and is this another autopilot hike that we're expecting here? Uh, you could call it that, and I know you have. <laughs> it's, uh,
6: it's autopilot in the sense that they have led the markets to believe there's going to be a rate increase, yeah. and they have not uh, countered that with any kind of um, you know, cautionary notes. So uh, they don't like to surprise the market, so you can pretty much expect the rate cr- increases in place. Then the question becomes, what do they, or what does Janet Yellen in her news conference say about what they do next? Do they Continue on the same path where the markets would have you maybe raising rates in September or December, or do they say we're going to be more data dependent and see what's happening because there's a bit of a slowdown? Uh, probably they'll stay on the same path and just be data dependent, and uh, and if they don't feel like raising rates in the future, yeah. they'll come out and say it just before that.
0: Well, Joe, I guess I call it autopilot, not because I believe that they'll just keep on hiking regardless of the data. I just believe there's a bias. Right now, a bias to hike, even if the data does soften up, they will hike. Whereas before, there was a bias to hold.
5: Yeah, I think there's two. I you know you you hear that word normalization talked about, which is a very loaded term because it implies that there's some sort of correct or normal rate that we should be at or that we want to get uh, yeah. back to, as opposed to just having a rate that is what's appropriate for the current economy right now. And the Fed, obviously, ideally rates should be whatever the uh, economy uh, uh, warrants at any given moment. And theoretically, that's normal. But you do get this sense that uh, central bankers just sort of at some level want rates to be higher for the sake of having them higher. Now I will caveat that and say, I think obviously the Fed is not, it's not like they've exactly rushed uh, at least some perspective. And I do think they still sort of abide by this sort of risk management idea of not doing any harm and making sure they're not gonna destabilize things. But nonetheless, there's a, I think uh, there's an inclination for wanting a higher rates regardless.
0: We had Ellen Zender of Morgan Stanley on, someone that you know well, Michael and Joe, of course, the uh, yeah. U.S. economist at the bank. And she said the market at the front end was still really underestimating the Federal Reserve, Michael, to the extent that the Fed has actually, for the first time in a long time, carried on doing what it said it would do. And and yet we've still got a market that's almost reluctant to price in two more hikes this year, and and the rate interest the interest rate hikes
6: next year and beyond as well. well there's an interesting um, behind the scenes debate underway here among uh, strategists and uh, analysts uh, suggest a group who suggest that uh, we're seeing a slowdown in credit creation in the U.S. So, yeah, uh, C and I loans are. Uh, stable, if not lower, and uh, we're not seeing as, as much credit demand for mortgages, and therefore the Fed's rate increases must be the problem. Um, And the Fed uh, is sort of looking at it as, we've uh, got rates too low. Banks can't make a profit, so they need to have rates a little higher in order to make more loans. And maybe it's not uh, credit creation, but credit demand that's the problem. And that's going to be the interesting thing that plays out the rest of this year. It all depends on your view of how the economy is going to develop. And you used to take a measure of that from the yield curve. A lot of people still do, but others uh, say it's distorted by lots of haven buying. So it's kind of hard to tell where the market thinks this is going to go. The only thing I would tell you is the Fed Fund's futures that are not pricing in September, they're going to change between now and then. Definitely one way or the other, they will change. So you can't take too much out of that.
0: Bloomberg's Mark McKee. International Economics and Policy Correspondent, alongside Joe Weissenthal, of course, Executive Editor for News for Bloomberg Digital and co-anchor, of course, of What You Miss, coming up on Bloomberg TV a little bit later. Coming up next on this programme, the ECB, Benoit Kure, he says Eurozone inflation is less reliant on stimulus, yet they're maintaining stimulus and cutting their inflation forecasts. More on that next. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio. Martin Offler Dire Straits. I used to listen to that on the way to, uh, to college, which, of course, is not college here. It's like the last couple of years of high school um, in the United States. But on the way to college, my dad would drive me and he played play Dire Straits' Joe Weissenthal. Um, basically, what happened was the cassette player chewed up Michael Jackson, and my dad took me to buy a new album, and Michael Jackson wasn't available, so he bought Dire Straits and had no idea who the band was, but became obsessed with the guitar riffs since about seven years old and it's stuck with me and now it's on radio just for you, Dad. Um, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Ferry. You're listening, of course, to The Cable. Eurozone inflation, a big story, uh, becoming less reliant, apparently, on ECB stimulus. Executive board member Benoit Couré said as he confirmed that policymakers are moving slowly towards an exit from their bond-buying programme. Couré declined to say when tapering of quantitative easing might be on the agenda. The next policy meeting is scheduled for July 20, but most economists Survey by Bloomberg, don't predict an announcement on the future of the programme until at least September. He spoke to my colleague, Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix on Bloomberg Television a little bit earlier. Take a listen to this.
1: We're still not seeing inflation where we would like it to be. Uh, we're still not seeing the uh, criteria that we've set for inflation to be sustainable uh, all being met. Uh, so uh, you need a sense of patience here.
0: How much of a nightmare is, is stronger GDP
2: on QE?
1: Stronger GDP is good news. Uh, It's an unqualified good news. This has been acknowledged by the governing council last week, and that's why we changed our communication to adapt to the changing reality. It also shows that our monetary policy measures are working. All the jobs that have been created in the eurozone over the last uh, three, four years or so, a lot of them uh, have been created thanks to the accommodative monetary policy stance. So it is working very well. Now we have an inflation mandate, so when it comes to the next steps, we'll have to uh, focus on inflation.
0: Why was tapering not discussed last week?
1: That wasn't discussed at all. It's too early to discuss it. We had to acknowledge the, the changing reality. Uh, we discussed a lot of the economic situation. We discussed the uh, prospects for inflation. There was a sense of progress also when it comes to inflation, where in spite of the inflation being revised downwards, if you look carefully at the staff forecast, you see that inflation is also less dependent uh, on our monetary policy measures, which is one step in the right direction. Uh, but it's not yet uh, quite enough to uh, to start discussing tapering.
0: That was ECB Benoit Couray alongside Bloomberg TV's Francine Lacqua. It's interesting to me, Joe, that he thinks that inflation is becoming more self-sustained, yet they had to cut forecasts sometimes ecb speak and central bank speak full stop is very very confusing to sort of wade through where's the ecb at right now
5: you know it's really interesting i was thinking about um i mean there's the uh the votes that we had over this weekend in france And in Italy, and in think, and in both cases, sort of uh, anti-establishment parties did poorly, and establishment did well. And I was thinking about what an incredible shift it's been this year for the perceptions of Europe. And so, obviously, the data has been, you know, uh, by and large, pretty solid. And at the beginning of the year, it really seemed like, you know, especially pre-November, I would say, it really seemed like U.S. and U.K. were fairly stable. And Europe was just uh, such a mess with no possible way out. And now suddenly people are very positive on Europe, not just for the fact that the data has been solid, uh, but also for the fact that there doesn't seem to be any big political risks uh, on the agenda. So. You know, we on the show on What You Miss All the Time, we have people come on and I can't remember the last time hearing from some strategist or investor. He didn't who say didn't say buy Europe. Yeah, who didn't prefer uh, <laughs> Europe to the US. I always ask, I say, when are we going to get someone who prefers the US? And basically, uh, no one does.
0: It, it is amazing. But I just wondered, Joe, whether the kind of political backdrop and now this situation where we have this higher growth story in Europe, yeah. lower inflation, but a central bank that's just going nowhere fast, whether that kind of just validates the whole thing in a big way to a point that we can just characterize it with one word if you hear by Europe a lot I imagine you hear Goldilocks a lot as well
5: yeah yeah, no, that's exactly right in the sense that while things are much better or things do seem to be better in Europe, both from a political and growth standpoint, what I think investors are attracted to in Europe is still the perceived high degree of slack and the lack of urgency on the uh, ECB to hike. So people see it as the best of both worlds. The economy is picking up, but nothing particularly urgent on the uh, on the hiking front. And so I think- um, that's really the uh, really the argument
0: there so i had um this conversation on friday just how quickly things can change not in europe and not just in europe but in the uk as well who would hike interest rates first now the european central bank or the bank of england and almost all of them said the ecb but 3 years ago to the day and i've i've grabbed the speech and i'm going to tweet it out in a minute The June 2014 speech from Governor Carney about raising interest rates. Um, And it was about markets speculating about the exact time of the uh, next interest rate hike, or the first one, given that we haven't seen one since the financial crisis. And in his words, it could come sooner than markets expect. Joe, that was three years ago. I
5: I vividly remember that speech. And it really seemed like it was an indication that the era of hikes and the uh, sort of post-crisis zero rates were truly coming to an end, and that it was he was basically warning everyone to, you know, the hikes are coming, don't be complacent. And, of course, now, from a hiking perspective, no, when when is the BOE going to hike? I don't know. Yeah. Is, anyone, from is, is
0: anyone talking about that anymore? Yeah. I mean, the, the world of politics kind of folds into that as well. Who yeah. would have thought two months ago, never mind three years ago, two months ago, that France would be more politically stable than the UK. I mean, that's the conversation we had on the radio blowing. show. And
5: I think it really, you know, we, it's become a cliche at this point to talk about how unpredictable politics has become and the polling errors and all that. But that is a... I just do not see anyone having called that story a few months ago. The fundamental, like the idea that Macron would not only win, but then theoretically sweep to have a huge legislative mandate afterwards, completely vanquishing the uh, populace. It's... I, Noah, I'm, it's very surprising.
0: It's a big turnaround. Bloomberg's Joe Weissenthal, really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Uh, what'd you miss? What time?
5: 330 Eastern time.
0: 330 Eastern. That means 830 in the city of London. Don't miss it on Bloomberg TV. Joe Weissenthal, executive editor of news for Bloomberg Digital and co-anchor of What'd You Miss. That wraps up the cable as we look ahead to a big week ahead in a world of central banks. Full coverage right here on Bloomberg Radio. You've been listening to the cable. Happy Monday. This is Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>